Philippians? The book of Philippians? We're going to read the last part of uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 27. And then we'll read the first four verses of, uh, of chapter 2 uh, this morning. Philippians 1.27, on to chapter 2. After Paul has written a wonderful intro to his letter, after he's talked to them about what it is like to be partners with them, for the sake of Christ, after he talks about the joy and the happiness that he has for them and he knows they have for him. He talks about uh, how life has uh, persecuted him, but because his perspective is on Christ and what Christ has done, that is not his story. His story is one who is a servant of God. And he continues this, on, this thought on, with beginning in verse 27, when he talks to them and he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them for their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And he continues that thought on. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Look not on your own interest, but also look to the interest of others. We live right now in the age of self. Self is everything. Self-actualization. Self-realization. Self-determination. Self-help. Self-esteem. Self-worth. Self-care. Me, me, me. I don't need you because I have myself. If I have a question, I don't have to go to Aaron, who knows car repair. I can go on YouTube and Google and take care of it myself. If I have a problem with something in my house and I, I know friends could help me, that's okay. I can call somebody to help me and handle it myself. It's self. It's all about me. And I can think of no better flag of this era than something that we all do, so I'm not, I'm not judging, and that is the selfie. Taking a picture of myself to see, you know, you go to a thing, I should do that some morning, just be like, hey, I want to put this out, you know, for my, my, my what do they call those guys, those uh, promoters, whatever they're called? Friends. No, not friends and followers. <laughs> That's good. It only took three weeks for the heckling to start, no. Take that picture and post it out there for all to see and for all, all to get a hold of. Take that selfie. How many selfies are taken in a, in a day and posted online? Thousands? By one person or the world? World. Oh. Millions? How many millions? Let's go. Billions. Billions. He's probably closer than the rest of you. 
93 million selfies every day in 2016 made their way to the internet. And it's three years, four, almost four years ago now, 93 million times a day where somebody somewhere in the world said, I want you to look at me in the situation I want you to see me in. I want to get the pose right. I want to get the thing right. I think I saw a picture one time was so cute of a, of a baby brother holding the blow dryer on his sister so her hair would blow back while she's taking the shot of the thing in the background, you know, just to get that look just right. Because you don't want a bad selfie. Sometimes selfie makes me long for the days when we at least just took pictures of our food. <laughs> but now we've moved on to this idea that everybody cares what I'm doing. Everybody cares what, what's going on in my life. And so I'm going to tell you minute by minute, day by day, what a great time I'm having. And I'm not even kind enough to say I wish you were here. Because that's okay, because I'm with myself, and you're with yourself. And I'm sure you're doing the great too, because you're taking care of yourself. Because if I focus on me, and I focus on my happiness, then I'm going to be happy. Because I'm a guy who gets things done. Only that isn't what's happened. You know, they look through every generation, they have these happiness quotients, and there's arguments one way or the other. But one thing they know for sure is this current era of life, I'll call it a generation even though it's multi-generational, is no more happy than the generation prior to that. And it's possibly no more happy than most of the generations in the history of mankind. I was talking to someone about this at work this, this week as I was preparing for this sermon, and um, they said something to me that I thought was hilarious. They said, okay, boomer. You guys know this phrase now? Yeah. <laughs> okay, boomer. That's okay. It's this phrase that's been come up with by uh, people of a certain age. Uh, every time somebody who is older uh, says something, they call you a baby boomer. Okay, boomer, like you just don't get it. And I looked at him and I said, isn't that amazing that you are so jealous of me and I'm not a boomer, by the way, but you are so jealous of me and you are so jealous of that generation and all that they have that you've had to come up with a put-down, even though they're probably not even thinking about you. And they said, whatever, and they walked away, because that actually wasn't really nice of me now that I say it out loud. But uh... <laughs> Okay, boomer. <laughs> but it's this idea that I, it's almost like we have two lives now. We have that life that, that's living inside of my heart and soul, and then we have that life we want the whole world to see. And that's always been a thing. But man, is it amplified now in the age of instant pictures, instant showing a, showing a photo to somebody, and wanting them to see that you're doing okay, and at least you're doing better than okay. And folks, it's making us miserable. We're killing ourselves to prove to the world how happy we are, and we're dying on the inside. Paul had a similar situation with that a little bit in, in, um, throughout some of his churches. But here in this series, we're calling this series Happy. Because as we look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see lots of, in, uh, we get a lot of insight into what brings people happiness, what brings people genuine joy, and also what can rob them of it. And if you look at this first start, as Paul did his introduction, it was just filled with how much he loves them, how much they bring him joy. And it was in the context of because we serve together, because you love me, because I love you, because we serve each other, because we've lived life together, because 
we aren't tied together just because we have something in common, because in fact, in this earth, we don't have a lot in common, but we have the one most important thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ. Paul said all of these things are coming together, and all of these things bring joy and happiness to our lives. Now, Paul being Paul, yes, he's writing a letter, and it's, it's a letter that's a testimony uh, to God's grace and God's love and, and what God does for us. But Paul also takes this opportunity to teach because it's just in his blood. And he starts at verse 27. And he says, uh, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life worthy. You could also say, Paul is saying, conduct yourselves. Now this word, conduct yourself, is a word of integrity. I mean, it, it's really saying, who, let who you are in here and who you are in here be who you are out there. Everywhere you go, every place they be, you should be what you see is what you get. This is who I am, and this is who God has made me to be. This is what God is doing in my heart and in my life. There's no putting up appearances. There's no trying to make myself look better than I really am. I am who I am. But in your heart and life, live a life worthy. So conduct yourselves as you should, but make sure when you do that you are doing it in a way that is worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of the gospel. This term worth, this is a term they used that really said, basically, let's make the trade fair. An honest day's work for an honest day's pay. If I'm going to come and I'm going to work for you and you're going to pay me $20 an hour, I'm, you're expecting $20 hour of work and I'm going to give you $20 an hour of work. Whatever you have given up for me to be connected with you, I need to act in an equal manner back, Paul's saying. He's saying, so if you're going to live your life, be honest with your life, but that life needs to be a fair trade. God has made an investment in you, and it's a big investment. Jesus Christ came down to this earth, he humbled himself, he died, he paid off all of your debt, which you couldn't possibly have ever paid, and he did this so that you could live a free life, so that you could be with him in eternity, so that the bondages and chains of this world that tear us all down can no longer be tied to you. That gospel, that thing that transformed your life, that thing that turned you from darkness to light, that thing that showed you for the first time in your life what true love really means? Yeah, that. Live a consistent life in a way that lives up to the cost of what it cost to give you that life. That's a pretty tall bill. Now, when I read that concept of be worthy of the gospel... I bet a lot of people in here got in their mind what that meant. What does that mean? How do I live that out? And we all have different ideas of that. Some people said that means I should have a better prayer life. I should be in church on Sundays more. I should be more in, in my word. Other people thought, well, that means I need to abstain from things that I'm doing that are wrong, and I need to quit doing those things. Or I need to, maybe some, I need to quit hanging out with certain people. Other people say, well, I've, I've got to get rid of my vulgar language, or I've got to get rid of my temper. And we, we tend to think of these things on the outside again. We're not thinking of this, we're thinking of this. And going, what out here has to change for me to show God that I'm worthy? And as we see all throughout Scripture, God is saying, let it change in here, that'll change it out here. 
But as long as it's just changing in here and you're being consistent, you're going to see some worth. But we all have that in our mind of what that looks like. And it's funny, the reason why I think this is funny is every time Jesus or Paul or other people challenge a person to be worthy, they immediately go to their own definition of what it means. Rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, just follow all the commandments, right? And guy's like, I do all those, but I can tell it's not enough. What have, what have I got to do? And so Jesus challenges them back to, uh, um, uh, to sell all, all of his possessions. When Peter, uh, after the resurrection, is talking to Jesus, and he's saying, do you love me? Uh, Peter's saying, Lord, you know I love you. you. You know I do. And Jesus is saying, I know you have in your own mind a definition of what that love is. Here's my definition. Feed my sheep. Serve others. And then you, you look at the disciples. Man, I love these, these guys because they're, they're, they're growing in the Lord, but they let you know that everybody's still growing, right? You know, you've, you've got the 12, and they're walking along. And I, any of you watch reality TV shows like Survivor or Amazing Race or any of those kind of things? Just me? Okay. In, in, in Amazing Race and these other shows, the first thing the cameras start to do is show you that, that all the contestants sizing each other up. Well, I'm going to form an alliance with this, this Jones couple over here because I could tell they're hard workers. We need to get that guy over there, and we need to get him out first because he's good at passing all those tests. We've got to figure all this out. And we're sizing him up, and we say, man, that guy, he did, nah, I'm better than him. I just need to get rid of a few more people. And they all figure it out. Well, the disciples invented that. Who was first among you in the kingdom of heaven? Guys, which one of us do you think? You know, you could tell they were looking. Well, the lawyers looking at the fishermen going, eh. The doctor's like, please, this is easy. James and John's mom is like, you guys do got to do what you got to do to win this thing. I, I want you standing on the, on the top of this thing when this is done. Right, left hand, that's what we're doing. And if you can't handle it, mom's going to come in and helicopter parent in. We're going to take care of this whole thing right here. So they really are having this conversation about which one of us is the better guy. And they're comparing up, you know, and it's like, well, Peter walked in water, fell in the water, you know, and they're having all these things going back and forth. And Jesus is so nice. He's like, what you talking about, guys? Like he doesn't know. And then he continues it on. And he says, you know, on earth, people show up, they, they show up and they, they expect to be served. They expect that I'm going to be a leader I'm going to be the guy who sits on the throne. I'm going to be the guy in the highest authority. You're going to see a senior in front of my name, and my title is going to be great. And he says, but then I got to earth, and I served you, and 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 you. Peter answered their question among which one of them would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, didn't he? But they have these, this moment. They have to figure all that out. And so I say all that to say, so many times when we come across this idea of what it means to be worthy, we have in our head what it means. But the writer in those passages of Scripture wasn't saying, I'm going to leave it to your own devices. I have a very deliberate reason for talking about living a life and a life that is, that is worthy. And we're going to talk about that as we get into chapter 2. But... I should also say that that actually begins at the, end of, uh, at the end of chapter 1 as well, but more in chapter 2. So what is that life that's worthy of the gospel? Well, he says, first of all, he says, so that whether I'm here or I'm gone, 
you guys are being who you're being. You're genuine people. You're, you're, you're living a life worthy. And I would know, know you're living a life worthy because I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Standing firm, one mind, side by side. This is a challenge to the church. All of these terms are both military terms and athletic terms in Paul's time. How many sports can you think of? Well, how many sports can, uh, when you think of sports, do the majority of them are team sports or it's multiple people or the majority of them uh, uh, an action that relies on one person to get the job done? The majority are team sports. And I'd argue even in those individual uh, uh, competitions, those are also team sports. There's a coach there that's pushing that person harder and harder and harder. There's uh, teammates who are, who are cheering them on when they're in their different piece. But all together, that's all coming together as a team. And the military has no concept of a military, of an army of one. That really doesn't happen. There's all of this other people around working together. And so Paul says, you want to live a life worthy? I'm going to tell you there's going to be some problems come. And when those problems come, Joe, you and I need to be standing side by side with each other, standing firm, holding our ground. We need to not be in the back hoping somebody up front is taking care of it. We need to be there with each other. Paul says, you want to live a life worthy of the gospel? Live a life where you are side by side, arm in arm with other believers, no matter what happens. And then he says something that is a little tough for me to hear. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake and engage in the same conflict that I've had and you're hearing, I still have. The church in America in the 20th and 21st century really doesn't know this kind of suffering. And if I'm being honest, I'm not upset about that. But if I'm also being honest, I know that in the last 150 years, all research says that the church is growing like crazy all over the world. But we don't notice it as much here. Because where it's growing, if you took the growth of the church and you took Amnesty International's places where people are treated the worst and you overlaid them, you'd be amazed at how identical those two things are. The church is growing in areas like Southeast Asia, in Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, where pastors are being taken in the middle of the night and sometimes return days or weeks later with broken arms and legs and they're, they're trying to ignore it. The church is growing in, in areas in Africa where they have to meet in secret and they have to talk in code. The church is growing in every place where the devil is trying to oppose the church. And Paul is saying, that's going to happen. And if you want to stand firm and you, wanna, and, and you want to still be the church, that when it does happen, you have to know God's going to do an amazing thing, and he's going to do an amazing thing through all of us. Not one of us. All of us are going to come together and do that. So Paul's challenge at the end of this chapter is to start to live a life that says, God, I love you. My perspective is on you and you alone. I'm going to live a life that says I'm worthy of all that it cost you for me. And Paul says the beginning of that starts when we all come together as one unified group. Paul continues that thought in chapter 2. When he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ... 
Well, this, this actually also should be, and let me, let me correct that a little bit. This is also the why. Why do you think Paul is, is, is writing this? If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. I picked on selfies. I also want to pick on something that might hit a little closer to home to my generation. And that is the glorious thing called Facebook. Facebook has had, shall we say, an interesting impact on society. I bet some of you didn't even know that the friends you had weren't really the friends you had until they put that important post out there on Facebook that lets you know that they loved pit bulls or they hated pit bulls or they weren't a cat person or they were a cat person or... They'd like this political party or that political party. I bet you didn't know you were supposed to not like that person. But you know now, thank goodness. It's, it's important to get that out there. You, sometimes you just don't know who a person is until you go and read their Facebook wall. Uh, that, that really, is, that really is, is something. You know, Facebook started as this place when I first heard about it. It's a great place to store your family photos so Grandma can see how the vacation was. So the friend you hadn't talked to in 10 years, you can see how old his kids are getting, and you can be all excited to see all of this stuff. And I went ahead for this sermon because I knew I was going to talk on this subject, and I started scrolling, and I counted how many times I saw a personal photo on the page that I was scrolling on. I got to 87 different people posting things, different people, 87 different people posting things until I got to one that was personal. Then I grabbed one person's page in particular, my aunt, if I'm being honest, please don't record that. Um, and I looked, and I looked for pages and pages and pages and pages. The last time she posted anything about herself or her family was December 19th. But yet she's posting 15 to 20 times per day. And we think about that and we think, yeah, that's true. But there, there's, there's something compelling about it out there where we get out there and we say, I've got to make sure these people know this. And if someone says something and I don't agree with it, I'm like, I'm just going to let them know it as well. And it starts friendly, but it doesn't always stay friendly, does it? And it starts to tear down and divide. And you go through all of this and um, people will just spend all day long trying to figure out, I've got the news article for that. Fox News isn't going to fail me this time or CNN. I know I can prove my point. Why am I bringing all that up? Well, because I don't know what was going on in Philippi, but like a Facebook post, I think it was something that we just have to argue about. Paul bringing up these issues is Paul saying, you know, there's something going on here. There's some division going on in this church. And maybe it's not huge. Maybe it's not on the level of what's going on in Corinth where they're, you know, butting each other out of the way to be first in line and stuff like that. But there's something going on underneath the covers here. And if I let it fester, I'm not your pastor. I'm not doing what I am supposed to be doing. So Paul doesn't tell you what it is, and I love that. He simply ignores whatever that argument is. Because taking sides in the argument is useless. It has no bearing on anything whatsoever. Instead, he starts to ask some questions. Now, preachers can sometimes be like your mom. When they start asking questions, you're already in trouble. They know the answers. These are rhetorical questions. And yet here we are. He says, 
Do you have any encouragement for what Christ has done in your life? Any at all? Yeah, yeah, Paul, we, we do. Do you, do you take any comfort whatsoever from knowing that God loves you? Is there, does that cause anything in your life? You're like, oh yeah, and you start to, he starts to build this and they start to remember of all these things. Any participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection, sympathy, do any of these things ring with you in your heart? Do any of these things really come down and say, man, you, I have sensed the Holy Spirit working in, in your life. And I could be wrong, but I can picture the, the person reading this letter and everybody listening to this letter whether they were fighting or not, whether, they had this, whether I stand next to the person, I had the argument or not, or whether they're on the other side of the room because I don't want to see them, I can see them in unison going, yeah, absolutely. Yes, I love God. Yes, I am so, so thankful for God's love in me. Yes, I am thankful for the power of His, His Holy Spirit in my life. Yes, all of this brings me great comfort. Yes, Paul, all of this makes me happy. And so Paul says, well, put a smile on an old preacher's face, will you? Let's act like a family. Let's start ter- stop tearing each other down. Let's stop focusing on the things that divide us and tear us apart that make us different. Because let's face it, we're all different. As I shared before, Lydia run a business. The Philippian jailer was probably there. Maybe he had a disagreement with Lydia because she wasn't giving health care benefits to her working class people. I don't know. But Paul says you could focus on that all day long. And that's going to tear you down. Paul doesn't even say that, does he? He ignores all that. He's okay, you're fighting about this. Yes, yeah, terrible, I know. Yeah, well, he'll, he'll get his dentist fixed somewhere else. Let me ask you a question. Do you love Jesus? Has Jesus done anything in your heart and life? Do you love me? Paul's making this about all three. Well, if you do, then do me a favor. Let's just love one another. Let's just take care of one another. You and I both know this is easier said than done. Of course, these things unite us. But boy, it can be very hard to let go of the things that divide us. And so Paul lets us know how we get to that point where we can bring joy to our lives and joy to others' lives. In verse 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also at the interests of others. Do nothing where my goal is to be the star. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of my own personal motivation to get ahead. Paul is declaring he's calling out a revolution against the self-movement. He's calling out a revolution where I have it in my right to be right about this, even if you're wrong. And he says, don't worry about whether I'm right or wrong. Don't worry about, what, worry about whether or not I'm going to get ahead. Don't worry about whether or not you're going to win that argument or if they know ultimately that you are right. Paul says, Folk, do not do anything out of selfish ambition. And the King James, I like, says vain conceit. Like I said, Paul isn't going at the situation itself. He's saying, do nothing in your life out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, how could he know that those would be the two things that they'd be arguing over? Because I can't think of many other reasons to start an argument. Think about it when you were a kid, either with a sibling or friend. Think about an argument that you had, a big argument you had when you were a kid. Get in your mind what it was about. Think about it. Just take a minute, what it was about. Now, that you have that. Was someone being selfish? Was someone being arrogant? 
was someone trying to be getting ahead? Paul says, think more, as Paul says in Romans, were they thinking more of themselves than they should? You can do the same trick with marriage, you can do the same trick at work, you can do the same trick at anywhere. As you get into the arguments we have on this earth, it is very easy to start to see that these are two of the core principles that come down to it. It's when I think I need to win. Now, whether that's the argument or whether that's the opportunity. I need to step on somebody at work because if I step on them, I know I'll get to the, the next thing. I need to make sure my name gets on that, thing, that work that we did because I know the big execs are going to see it. I need to toot my own horn and make sure people know how great I am because if they don't, I'm not sure that I'm going to get ahead. I need to let them know why I'm better than the other guy. Paul says, strip all of that away. Strip all that away. And you don't even have to be in an argument with somebody to do that. Do you know that? I've watched, uh, we, we, we laughed because uh, one time we were watching a parent record their, their kid uh, at baseball practice. And I'm like, oh, that's how nice you're, you're recording that. And the parent said, I'm recording it to play back to his dad because his dad's going to yell at him tonight for what he did wrong. And I watched this couple with their kid, and they're, 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 they're good people in general, but I think there's something about him that says every time that kid screws up on the field, it's a reflection on me, and I can't have that reflection on me. And so my kid needs to, to, to do better and better and better. It's that selfish ambition. It's that vain, vain conceit. Paul says, you know when you have the right to think your needs matter more than someone else's or that the other person is here to serve you? Never. You don't have that right. Paul says, do you want to be happy? Don't ever ask if the person is doing enough for you. Don't even for a minute think how lucky people are to have you in their lives. Well, again, that's easy, Paul, but Paul, how do we do that? Paul says on in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let them know how fortunate you are. Let them know how, how, how blessed you are because they are a part of your life. That can be done through words, but more often it is often received through action. Step into this church. Look at the person across your table and praise God that God has done something incredible in both of your lives and that neither of you gets any bragging rights about it because neither of you can take credit for it. Step into situations with friends you know that are believers and instead of arguing over whatever is going on in, in your world, look at that person and say, how are you doing? What's going on today? How can I serve you? How can I show you love? Now the best examples I have of this I've actually shared before, but I'm going to share them again. When, when we went to Barcelona, a group of us, yes, it was a mission trip. Aaron, Aaron keeps saying it was a vacation. We were working hard for the Lord and... Yeah. A winery with a pool. Um, <laughs> but we got there, and there was already a group of people who were there locally who were putting on this entire children's ministry program. And they're looking at these 12 people that just showed up from America that speak only English, and they're going, wait a second, is there a mission group here to take this situation over? Now, they never overtly said that. But they sort of had let us know it in the way they were behaving and they wouldn't let us kind of get into this or get into that, whatever it was. It was no big deal, but it was just, you could tell they were wondering why this doesn't show up when they clearly had it under control. And the next morning we get up for breakfast and they asked Sherilyn to say a few words and someone's going to translate. And Sherilyn shared how her vision for missions trips is not to come in and do missions work for the local people and then leave. 
Sherilyn said she is grateful that, they, that God has put so many wonderful men and women of Christ in that community who care so much about these kids that they're going to dedicate 10 days of their life to focusing all their time, effort, and energy on those kids. And then Sherilyn said this, Our job here is to serve you while you serve them. Our job here is wherever you tell us to do things, we will do them. Whatever you want us to do, we're going to do. Now, I can guarantee you that there were things they did the way they did that we weren't always in, okay, we could do this better, we could do that better. It didn't matter because Sherilyn gave us all our marching orders. Serve them. Do what they want to do. You tell me it's time to go in and clean out the kitchen, that's what we're going to do. We're going to clean up the kitchen. You tell me you need some help, Corral and Dave. I, I, got, uh, I think Phil and I both got lumped with like a younger guy with us, and we were the older guy. Sometimes the younger guy didn't know how to deal with seven and eight-year-olds. Well, we did, so it was like, they're just kids, right? You, you speak to them in Spanish, we'll just keep kicking them back into action, and you know, we'll keep it moving. But it was this heart that just said, I'm going to serve. And Kathy, Kathy was like, uh, they said, Kathy, we need you to uh, wash dishes. She said, right on. Kathy, we need you to cook breakfast. Right on. Kathy, can you help drive? Right on. And while she's in there, she's talking to the kids and she's the, the other volunteers, and she's hearing about their pain. And then she's setting it all down and she's praying with them. And then we lost Kathy one day. And it's like, where'd she go? She's at a Starbucks. Went to get coffee. We knew it'd be a Starbucks. We just had to find it. And when we found her at the Starbucks... She's praying for a guy that she met five minutes earlier. He's crying. I, was, I didn't see it, but she came back. He's crying. She's praying because she was there to serve him. Yeah, she was there to get her coffee too, but she was there to serve him and to say, what is it you need? We didn't get any credit for any of this. We didn't need any credit for any of this. We didn't need to run the thing. They had a, a half-put-together boat. We did a skid on it. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Those kids had a ball, and all we did was serve. I've shared also about teen night. People say, what do you do with teen night? I say, I serve that man right there. Oh, how do you serve him? Well, he calls me and tells me what he needs. Sometimes he asks me to hold him accountable to stuff, so I do. Sometimes he asks me questions, so I do. Other times it's, I feel bad tonight. Can you make sure the door gets open? Yeah. I'm so glad I would have ruined teen night in the first 20 minutes. I would have organized it. <laughs> We'd have had programs and times. Oh, Carlos says he's not that organized, but I'd a little more organized it. And I would have killed it. But it quickly dawned on me that when you asked me to volunteer, that I wasn't there to get down there and play basketball, obviously. And uh, I wasn't even there to, to lead group studies and things like that. All that was taken care of. What was needed is the people there needed to be served. And so that's what, God, what Paul is saying to this group. Listen, church. You want to be happy? Humble yourselves. Don't think you're better than anyone else in this room because you're not. We've all been bought with a great price. Don't show up going, okay, well, how can I lead this next thing? Be honored and consider the great amount of responsibility when you're asked to serve as a leader because it's incredible. And be ready to stack the chairs at the end of the service today. Amen. If that's all the more they ask you to do. <laughs> do you realize the potential that comes on in the church if I take my focus off myself and I put my focus on you? 
Do you realize the potential that comes when I first put my focus on Jesus and I get that perspective and then I put that focus on you? Next week we're going to talk about Jesus as the model for all of this, but I wanted to close this morning on the concept of some ways that we can be able to do this. Last week I talked about getting a different perspective. Last week I talked about having a new perspective on, on, uh, on looking at God instead of looking at the world around us. And I didn't get to share how we can pull some of that off. And I wanted to share that this morning. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that this man does he prospers. And I want to quickly hit on three points on this. The first thing I want you to know is that happiness is possible. Happiness in your life, true joy, absolutely is possible. This term blessed in the Old Testament, it means happiness. Okay? It's possible. If you take nothing else in this entire series, say, God wants me to be happy. Just hang on to that as part of that series. The second thing is, the more I focus on happiness, the less I'm going to get happiness. The Bible talks all throughout Scripture about happiness, but it doesn't say focus on it. It doesn't say happy or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness, for they shall receive happiness, does it? It says, no, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are meek. Happy are those people who focus on the right things. And so God says, don't focus on the happy, focus on the righteousness. Focus on that hunger and that thirst to know more of me. And that third piece really is in this psalm. Because it says, the less you focus on the things outside, the less you focus on the scoffers or, or, or listen to the sinners, but you really do hunger and thirst for his righteousness, you delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on that word day and night, the more blessed you will be. He says, spend time with me. Spend time day and night with me. Let me pour my truth into your mind, into your heart, and into your soul. And Paul says, I got the, or Paul, the, the psalmist says, I've got the perfect image for this. When you plant trees all over an area, and one of them is so fortunate to be planted by a stream, it's getting its nourishment and its strength from the water that's flowing through that stream and all the nutrients that are coming along with it, and it's absorbing them all, and it's growing healthy and healthy and healthy. And when the storms come in the life of that, that orchard, all the other trees are at risk. They're going to possibly fall. They're going to possibly die. Why? Because they're relying on the rains. They're relying on not too much wind. They're relying on their conditions. But this tree relies on something underneath. This tree relies on something down in the root system people can't see, and that's a stream running alongside of it. And when the storms of life get really tough, this tree puts down new roots deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into that same nourishment. So what does all that mean? It means if you want to know what it's like to get that perspective talked about last week, if you want to know what it's like to live a life that's humble, if you want to know what it's like to live a life that's not about me, then make that life about Him. Make that life about time in His Word. Make that life about time in prayer. Make that life about talking to each other, not just about how the Packers are probably going to lose today, but also talking about how, also talking about how we love one another. Also talking about... Uh, how much we care for each other. 
Also talking about how it's going at work for somebody. Also talking about how you're serving. And if you're not serving and you can't think of an answer to that, talk to somebody who is serving. It won't take long. If you want to really know what it means, then take a look at your life and say, how much of it has lived on his perspective, with his strength, in his word, in prayer with him, and talking about him and his love for us with each other? Dig those roots deep. Because if you can't find any time in your week when you're doing that, you're going to have a very hard time understanding what Paul is talking about in the scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father, there are no words to describe how um, humbling and intimidating it can be when Paul says to live a life worthy. We know that there is no payment in full for what you've given us, what you've sacrificed, and what you've done for us. I am so profoundly grateful for that. And I find even the ask of how to be worthy to be a challenge, but one I know that you call us all to. Help us all to let our roots go down deep into you, into your word, Let us all help to shift our focus from me, myself, and I to God and others before I get to myself. And through it all, Lord, we know that as we serve each other, as we touch each other's lives, we are all going to be amazed by how you bless us, not maybe in the physical things of this world, but on who we are deep down in our soul. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.